0: Well, Steve Rhodes is professor emeritus of politics at the University of Virginia. My name is Robert Driessen, publisher of economics and political science here at the press. Uh, Professor Rhodes, in case you haven't heard of him, wrote one of the best-selling books published by Cambridge since World War II, An Economist's View of the World, which suppresses republishing in a 35th anniversary edition, revised to take account of developments in the field since it was first published as well as political developments like the Trump presidency, for example. This anniversary edition will be published early in the fall and is among our highlights on the trade list. It also will have strong course adoption potential for upper level undergrads and graduate students. And I'm I'm glad to say the book has an international following uh, for well-known scholars across the social sciences are familiar with it and hold it in such high esteem that 35 years later, you can still find it on some syllabi. And so, I'm thrilled to publish this book. i'm I'm delighted to work with uh, Steve and have the opportunity for this interview. All right, Steve, let's just get right into this and and um, let's start just by talking the book, uh, for that's why we're here, of course. And upon reading the first few pages of the first edition, it struck me by how how readable the book is.
1: Now, there well, are no- I'll try to make it this way. Let me tell you how I got into this. As you know, I have a PhD in government not even in economics, although I had 20 hours of economics in graduate school. And uh, when I got to Virginia, I was told I'm going to be teaching economics uh, in one of my courses to public administrators. We happen to have a public administration program in our politics department, and they didn't have anybody who could teach them any economics. Obviously, a public administrator should know some economics. So I looked at all the available texts, and I really wasn't wild about any of them and uh there was too many diagrams at their worst they'll have equations you know I, I wanted something these are introductory students smart students but introductory students and i wanted them to be excited about the about it and found it easy to get into so i wrote a book that's all words no, no diagrams or anything and uh it's uh meant to be very readable it's got lots of uh, case studies lots of examples lots of anecdotes but I also think it's well grounded in the um, in the literature. Yes. Well, you're a
0: political scientist and there might be some who would say, well, you know, why is a political scientist here writing uh, a book that is seen very much as an, an economist book? And you explain that in your preface or introduction, I can't remember which, I think the preface, but would you mind recounting in this interview that story?
1: Sure. Well, actually, um, the book, as you mentioned, did very, very well in the top 1% of sellers of Cambridge. I didn't expect this. Cambridge didn't expect this. I did hope it would do well, because frankly, I, I was not a very distinguished professor at the time. I hadn't published much, but I've been working on this book for 10 years. And I thought it was certainly ambitious, and I thought it might be very good. And I was delighted to get to Cambridge, a very top press. And um but what happened was we had published a couple thousand to begin with, and then it needed to be republished and reprinted and reprinted and reprinted. And then we began to get into a, a different languages, Spanish and Chinese. The Chinese, when the China, China Times selected uh, the, the Chinese version as one of the top 10 books of their China Times, it's like the New York Times in Taiwan, mm-hmm. as one of the top 10 books, actually the fourth best book of the year. So I thought wow this is something and I I still had no idea how many distinguished scholars who I didn't know and didn't know me would happen upon the book and like it and some of them were 15 years later after publication people were using it in their courses 20 years later but I knew look at the, all my examples I love examples but they're all 20 years old at least so I thought you know when I, I was finished with teaching I wanted to write a uh, a new edition. It's not just an ordinary update. This is really a new a new presentation, a new take on it. Um, and I think uh, I've just been delighted that the first edition got reviews such as the guy who's the editor of the Encyclopedia of Economics. This that's called mm-hmm. the Short Encyclopedia of Economics. Sure, the economist. He said, "Can I lift your marginalism chapter?" out of your book. I want to make it the entry in my encyclopedia. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got all kinds of uh, guys who are Nobel laureates in that encyclopedia. And here he wants me, this is one of the most important concepts in economics, to explain it to people who don't know about it. Yes. And there was others, you know, marvelous and a guy I didn't know at Princeton, a chair professor said, this is marvelous. I'm going to hesitate went to Wilson School to make a required reading with everybody over there. I didn't know this guy, but it began to be pretty clear. This was a big hit. I thought I could make a, a new one. I'm a better writer now. I think sure. i like to make a new one that's uh, even better.
0: Well, yes, and I, of course I wasn't around when it was first published, but I do have in my office uh, a copy of that edition. And we published it pretty much, as they say, pretty straightforward, scholarly book, fairly small print, uh, basic cover, paperback, and 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 it's surprising how it crossed over um, even back then. Be, if you look at it from the perspective of, of of a publisher and how it was published and the design and the readability and so forth, and I'm just delighted that this new edition um, uh, will be much more readable. In addition to be being uh, uh, more current, but did you you wanted to make it accessible, but The readership you had in mind, were they uh, economists, graduate students, undergraduates, general readers? Did you have a readership particularly in mind, or were you just trying to get across your ideas in the most accessible manner and not really focus on who the readership uh, was?
1: Well, I'd say the main readership I aim at, that one and this one, is people who don't know much of economics and maybe people who think they know of economics and don't like what they know about it. Yeah, Because maybe they studied in school 20 years ago and scratchy, scratchy uh, blackboards and chalk flying everywhere. And the professor kept saying, these diagrams are the best way to learn economics. And I said, they're not the best way to learn <laughs> economics. And and uh, so I, I, I kind of begin by saying, hey, if you're in this group, this book is especially aimed at you. But I would have been very disappointed if the economist readers didn't think I knew my stuff. Yeah. And that was very gratifying that they seemed to think, no, this guy knows economics. And one of them said in his review, I'm astounded that someone on the discipline could know it so well. And also because he knows it so well, can be able to uh, enter a really powerful critique because economics is marvelous within its structure, within its framework. But when it talks about what's the good life and what's what the important uh, parts of a good life are, it can go become very narrow, I think, to most people. And most psychologists these days, for example, say to be happy in life, you need friends and family, most of all. Mm. Economists, I think, back then, and maybe mainly now, said, look, people have jobs, they want to make money, they want to make money because they want goods and services and leisure. If they get more of those things, they'll be happy. I don't think the psychologists find that's true, that 47% of Americans say they're lonely. Yes. It's one of the most important things to happiness is being having friends and family. Wow. We mm. shouldn't be thinking so much about goods, but that's at the last part of the book. First I want yeah. to explain why this is a powerful powerful framework and why it can help us understand politics and public policy what's better than we used to. I think it's a it's a essential to be an intelligent citizen uh, actually to know a little bit of economics.
0: Yes, yes, I agree. So, Steve, what was the largest challenge of writing this book, do you think? I don't mean not only the revised edition, but the original edition as well for you and yeah. for the readership you were writing for.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, uh, first of all, I had to overcome prejudices. People don't like even Ph.D.s don't much like economists. They're so cocky and, you know, they, they think that, you know, they're economists studying in in courses, education environment and labor and distribution and all these things. And and when they when you want to get a job in government, everybody says you got to have some economics, at least if you don't not a lawyer. Mm. So but but I also knew there was a skepticism about it. How do you know so much uh, uh, that you can talk about all these different disciplines, all these different subjects in a knowledgeable way? So I I, I thought part of what I wanted to do was explain some concepts that they have that are really helpful. One's marginalism, opportunity cost, economic incentives. And these are ones I kind of drew up myself. In other words, if you pick up an economics textbook, you don't find a a chapter on each of those. But but an economist knows that these concepts are fundamental to what they do. And whether they have a PhD or not, they probably encountered these concepts when they were freshmen. Mm. And I, therefore, I didn't have to get, get into too much depth uh, to show why these concepts are really important. The other thing I wanted to be sure to do was to talk about markets because, and I kind of warned the reader when, in these introductory pages that if I'm going to talk about, uh, I know that people who say they're going to talk about markets are usually considered to be conservatives, you know, and therefore, if you're not a conservative, uh, I don't know, Another guy, ta- another guy talking about markets. And therefore, I try to point out right at the top that this isn't the way economists see it. For example, Joseph Stiglitz is a Nobel laureate economist. He is well left of center among economists as well as politics. He agrees with Bernie Sanders about a whole lot of stuff. He thinks thinks our economy is not stable, it's not, it's not efficient, it's not fair. That sounds like Bernie Sanders. But he says, I'm not a democratic socialist. I don't want to join that group. I want to be a progressive capitalist because I realize that any successful uh any successful economy anywhere relies on private property and markets. And if you go to Paul Krugman, many of my listeners may know him from his New York Times column, certainly well to the left politically. Yes. If you look at his textbook, he says markets are marvelous. The way they can pull together different parts of the economy in a sensible way. Now that doesn't mean he wants, doesn't want to adjust them he want, in many ways, but he, but he's also a big market man. So I wanted to explain why economists, uh, I know a lot of non-economists, I've heard them tell me f- for economists, the markets are like a religion. They always sort of well, let the market handle that one. Let the market do that. They know what is this like, like a religion. And I think it's not just like a religion. What, what I hope my listeners my, and my readers will, is, Look, these are guys who agree with me politically, and they all love markets too. It's not just conservatives. So I wanted to explain why markets do a marvelous job of bringing things together. And maybe I could go in and talk a little bit about my example in those introductory pages, because it's a it's a weird kind of example. I say, well, if you want to, if you don't want to use markets, how in the world would you decide how to allocate the sawdust? Oh. <laughs> sawdust, well, I thought he was going to say steel, Who? sawdust. I didn't know there was even a market for sawdust. What do you mean sawdust? And I, I picked that because it seems so trivial. But I got the idea when an economist was up in Vermont on a, on a summer vacation, he ran into a dairy farmer and he said, boy, my milk is doubled what it was last year. What's going on? He said, well, all my inputs are up. They're all more expensive. For example, sawdust doubled, tripled. And he thought, Sawdust, you're a dairy farmer, how do you use sawdust? He says, I use it all the time. My cows give more milk if they're comfortable. They're comfortable if they get a chance to lie down. They love to lie down on sawdust. He said, well, I learned something there. So then I looked further into sawdust and I realized that you know, another thing, so suppose you're a planner and people come to you and say the price of milk's too high. We got the, the milk uh, for our schools. It's important for young kids to have low fat milk. And, What can you do when you come up with a plan as a planner or a politician? Well, we'll subsidize the milk a little bit. And then other people point out, well, you know, sawdust is also used in housing. I didn't know that, but it's used in housing because it's very cheap compared to lumber and plywood. And if you want low income housing, which is what people were complaining about, you don't want to use up all the sawdust somewhere else because that's going to make your housing more expensive. And probably the planner wouldn't think about that. But the market thinks about that because the people doing the housing think, Where, how can I get sawdust to make my make my uh, fake lumber? So I look further into it. It turns out sawdust is also used to make dashboards of cars. Mm. It's used in charcoal briquettes. So I ask my readers to think, well, how in the world, are we, if without markets, how are we going to decide who gets the sawdust? Uh, another thing is that it's used in mulch. So if we're gonna say, well, look, your, your mulch is up because we had to do something for the milk and the and the lumber. You said, well, I, I didn't agree to that. Well, my mulch is very important too. I don't want it to be more expensive. And the people making dashboards will say, I've always used sawdust. It's too expensive now, I can't use it. What am I gonna use instead? So this one planner, <laughs> we give him a tiny minor, minor thing, decide what to do about sawdust. He can't figure it out in a way that pleases people. But markets can somehow do it because they put a price on it. And if 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 milk is really high, and therefore uh, people who are dairy farmers really make sawdust because it, it means they can sell more of this milk at a high price, they in some sense deserve to get more sawdust. And pe- the others are just going to have to give up some of what they had. But at the same time, I think economists are great. And this is what I mean by marginalism, which is just... marvelous concept adam smith couldn't even figure it out he said how is it that water is less expensive than diamonds we can't live without water we can easily live without diamonds but if someone said i'll give you a bucket of diamonds or a bucket of water which one do you want well even because diamonds are just a waste of money you'd take the bucket of diamonds because they're so much harder to make to find Mm. and get bring to market than water so this points out that it's cost you have to look at at the margin as well as benefits and we have a whole lot of water so the next bucket of water is not going to be that important to us if we didn't have any, we're in the desert it's, it couldn't be more important tell me what's changed since you first
0: wrote the first was since the first edition was published in 1985 yeah. tell me tell me what's changed the, what edition the
1: biggest change i think is in the interest in distribution of income and i go into that a lot because uh, back in the first edition, people, uh, economists usually said, well, a rising tide lifts all boats. And the idea was that economic growth affects those, uh, uh, improves the life of those at the bottom and improves the life of those at the top. This rising tide lifts everybody's wages. Maybe not the same amount, but everybody's going to benefit from growth. Now, of course, there's big arguments about that, saying those at the top have, have uh, growing disproportionately income and their wealth and income, and those at the bottom haven't gained much at all. I go into the data on that, which is not quite as clear as the press suggests, but certainly it's in that direction. And I I spend a lot of time on distribution. Here you get the difference that probably people expect between economists. There are liberals and there are conservatives and the liberals will be the ones I agree with, the conservatives will be those that won't agree with. I try to disillusion them right at the start about that. Say, look, there was a guy who was an associate Secretary in the labor and our first time to say, Brookings is a liberal outfit, a think tank, American Enterprise Institute, a conservative outfit. But the guy who was in the Bush administration as a high-level economist went to head up important division of the Brookings, so the liberal economist. In other words, the economics on regulation, on all markets and so on are pretty much alike, but on distribution, and on equity, and about whether it's worthwhile if even if we lose a little growth. So redistribute income toward the poor, there's a real split. I think most economists would would think we should do some of that, but they point out we already are doing a lot of that. We have food stamps, a new name now, but we have housing, we have Pell grants for education, we have uh, a negative income tax, we have a uh, work incentive by you add on to workers' wages if it's low income, you get an added bonus from the government. We have a lot of that. So the question is whether we have enough and whether we should have more, and that's a big issue in the in the government in the in the books. Yeah. So now you were thinking about. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Go ahead. Well, the other big difference is on the in the concluding critical chapters because I was pretty much winging on my own, and initially. And now there's this wonderful part of, of psychology called positive psychology. Mm. It used to be that for some reason psychologists were interested in people who are doing poorly. And that's. But what about how do people do well? And this is a whole branch that talks about how to do well, what makes people happy. And they talk about things like awe and, and uh, gratitude and uh, a whole other vocabulary, which is marvelous. And there's also uh, ethics. There's an, a virtue ethics school that's grown up and spend a lot of time reading Aristotle and talking about character. And I could draw on this in my criticism as well. So I, I expand that in that way. I have lots of new examples for all my concepts, which I use uh, still, and um, and that's kind of the book. In other words, if you look at the chapter titles, you'd say, "Oh, God, it's the same thing." It's not the same thing at all. It's mainly new stuff, new ed- new editions, new issues, but this, the fundamental framework is still economists still like it.
0: Yes, yes. Well, with respect to that value added, the the, the moral value, if you will. I guess that subtitle speaks to that quite a lot uh, the question I, I i think that's uh, many readers who would come to this book from an economics perspective would flinch a little bit perhaps at that subtitle and and maybe that's good uh that they might flinch and i think that's a that's a quite an unusual aspect of this book yes and, to, to and i'm glad it.
1: you kind of encouraged me to go in that direction robert i appreciate that because I think you're right. I, I mean, at the beginning, it was economist view of the world, government, markets, and public policy. You know, in the, the introduction, I'd say in a chapter one, we're going to do this, and chapter two of that, and you said, no, no, no. This is, when a general reader picks up that stuff, they want to get excited about the book. This won't do it. Yeah. So I dreamed up uh, because it's quite accurate, actually, this subtitle. So it's the economist view of the world and the quest for well-being because they, we, then we can see the economists have one understanding about what's, what will make us happier, what well-being is, but philosophers and psychologists have a different understanding. And uh, I go through literature, have some interesting quotations from Lincoln and from a uh, fair amount of our uh, of famous historical figures who appear, appear here, if I think they're wise, as a lot of them were. So yeah, yeah th- this is uh, these are the biggest changes I made.
0: Yes. So I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Steve. Yeah. If some senior economist out there, how is there any area in this book, or any something that they might say, Rhodes didn't do this, Rhodes didn't do that. He didn't take into account, let's say, institutions, or what would you say? Uh, are there any weaknesses here? There um, uh, yeah, there's Steve. always
1: going to be weaknesses, but. Uh, what I'm surprised with, in a way, in a way uh, the endorsements for the book, which we sent co- early copies out to, people I didn't know, uh, and I didn't know whether they'd read it or not, but I, it's amazing the number of re- who read it, a Nobel Laureate, a, yes. a big shout economist at Harvard, another one at Princeton, so on, uh, who read it and loved it. So we can we can say they, seem, they anyway think it's a darn good book. That's a great introduction to, um, Economics. One of them uh, is Kahneman, Daniel Kahneman, who, who's I'm told by some economists, is the most famous living economist. But he's not actually an economist. He began as a psychologist. And I, I wrote him because I thought he was engaged in a, in a little back and forth on a blog. It turns out he wasn't, but he loved the book. He said, "I'm so glad you wrote it. this was this was my text because I was a psychologist. When when my economist friends were trying to teach me economics, I just this is what I look to." Yes. And he ends up saying uh, with gratitude to right? <laughs> I'm an important teacher. I I'm the important teacher. Anyway, it does su- suggest that a lot of famous economists anyway, think I didn't miss much of importance. But if there's anything, um, probably uh, behavioralism There's a big movement for- towards saying, look, this 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 movement toward consumers as being rational and consumer sovereignty. We should we should listen to consumer sovereignty and give consumers what they want. Consumers are very irrational. And and they point out, especially in distant time and even not so distant times, yes, some consumer would you rather have a hundred dollars, a hundred dollars now or 110 next month? It's amazing the number who say, "Oh, give me the hundred now. Uh, And this, I think, is partly for evolutionary reasons, because we didn't used to have used to say if you had food or money, use it now. You didn't know what you'd find tomorrow. Anyway, there's deep reasons for this, maybe. But it's a little weird. You wouldn't expect people to say that. So this, the behavioralists say, you know, you can't really trust consumers all that much. <laughs> and uh, I say there's something in that, but I don't trust behavioralists all that much either because they kind of, in benefit-cost analysis, they kind of say, well, I'm not sure consumers get the importance of, of this um, less, more efficient dryer. Uh, over time, they'll pay less money yes. to buy the more efficient one, so we won't even offer the, the lower efficient one I, I say well how do you know that you know but 40 percent of consumers are more paid debt on their visa bill every every month they, they aren't they they care about money right now they don't want to hear well yeah. i've saved 25 years from now
0: yes but isn't yeah. behavioralism still in the ascendant in economics i think it the is
1: social sciences too it, among economists i think it is still rising but I think uh, my justification for not saying too much about it, I do talk about it in three different places, sometimes favorably, sometimes not favorably is it's not an in introductory textbooks. I, I mean, I think this is something you get in more advanced textbooks. If you read an introductory textbook, they're talking about supply and demand and consumer mm-hmm. sovereignty, and consumers want a high pri- low prices, businesses want high prices, they come together at some price. And it's, so it's—it's it's, this is an introductory book, and I spent a little time on it, but I think I'm right not to uh, spend more time on it, because most introductory texts don't.
0: Yes. Yes, I understand. Now, Francis Fukuyama, who who had great things to say about the book, he also had uh, sort of an inflection, an interesting, not a criticism, but questioning why you might not have covered this. And can you tell us about that? Yeah. Sure.
1: Sure. Uh, and Frank, it's is, is a good a and he's, uh, he's been very supportive of the book. And he makes an interesting point because uh, look, the book is if you're praising markets, you probably have occasion to find reasons to criticize government because most economists think it's not a, as efficient as markets. If you look at when the public sector picks up trash, how much does it cost versus when it's bid out to private sector, the private sector does it cheaper and so on. So. And, and they tend to think bureaucracy's kind of out of control in government. And uh, markets, if, if your bureaucracy is out of control, somebody else will put you out of business. So they, they think markets tend to keep costs down more. But uh, but that doesn't mean uh, that economists think you, can't, you shouldn't do anything to improve things, especially in the future. And they love innovation, but they tend to draw the line here. They say, look, we should support new ideas, new technologies. Well, we shouldn't support particular businesses like Solyndra, for example. This was one particular failure under Obama. It lost a whole lot of money. There was a lot of talk about cronyism. Why did they get the bill, get it versus someone else? Well, if you, if you, you, whenever you support particular businesses, it's kind of like crony capitalism. How do you pick that one? There's this other guy who had, was making batteries, not Cylindra, but they had much more business and they haven't gone out of out of business. So... Why didn't you pick those? And that's always, and people, even if you had a good reason, people say, ah, oh, it was favoritism. Beauty of markets is you don't get the subsidy. You get, the, you get your money from the consumer. So, but Frank says, wait a minute. Uh, but however, economists are absolutely in favor of research and development. One of them points out, uh, Larry Summers, a very famous economist, points out, you know, we wouldn't have the GPS if it weren't for Albert Einstein. I didn't realize that. He doesn't. And He doesn't lay it out. But they're saying, it's very important to have uh, basic research because you never know where it's gonna go. You never knew who's gonna take the idea and take it off in a never different direction you hadn't even thought about. We need basic research. We need government support because you can't do make money doing basic research. It's basic precisely because you're not quite sure how you're gonna use this down the road. So economists are in favor, and this is what Frank's a big believer in. He thinks we need more industrial policy aimed at encouraging innovation. And uh, so we're gonna have a little exchange, I hope, about this. I'm sure he has important things to say. He would point to particular agencies uh, that you probably never heard of, they're pretty much who do good work, the National Science Foundation and so on, and saying if they get more money, there'll be more spin-offs. And he argues that there are lots of countries that have made progress with industrial policy. Now, I try to go through the literature. I, quote, Nobel laureates who said, I went through it and I didn't see where industrial policy did us any good. And I see the economists in England are saying the same thing. So we're obviously looking at different literatures and I hope we'll have an occasion. I think Cambridge is interested in bringing us together. To yes. A friendly exchange about this matter. Uh, I think that there's, uh, there's certainly in principle good ways that the government could do more basic research that would help us. And uh but there's so many failures, you know, when we started started wanting directed funding toward particular cities that were having trouble, it gets involved in politics, it doesn't. You know, when we first began with solar energy, we wanted a few distribution centers around the country. So where do we put them? One of them went to Arizona, that makes sense. There's a lot of sun in Arizona. One of them went to Boston. Boston? There's almost no new sun up in Boston. Why would you want to see a, solar energy makes a sense in Boston? Well, Tip O'Neill was the was head. Was the Speaker of the House, he was from Boston. So it's very hard in a democratic system if you if, if you can get elected by giving your constituents stuff to find out a pure way. We're only going to have the experts in on this. And the other thing the economists point out, we don't know who the experts are. The people, you know, they have a big contest, and somebody who used to grow mushrooms found out the side products from mushrooms make good good insulation. He was an RPI. He said, you know, I, you know money, we threw this stuff away. You now, ICAID uses it. It's used instead of the spirofoam, which is we can't get rid of. It. It's an environmental disaster. I but know. if you had a contest for who should get the money, you wouldn't pick up this, this undergraduate RPI. Mm. But th- there's these constant surprises. Economists who study it say the most important thing, uh, somebody interested in new technology, the most important thing he says is not, aha, it's, that's strange. You see, that strange means, wow, I didn't expect that. You know, yeah. if, that if that chemical's really good for that, what would be something good with that chemical that we w- would want to do? Yes. And so, therefore, it's not very predictable. That's why it's hard for government, to, I think, to do industrial policy. And Frank will have a different outlook on this.
0: Okay. Well, on that surprise, let's, uh, I think we've run out of time. Steve, thank you for this interview, and I, I really look forward to that book coming across my desk this fall.
1: I am too. Okay. I can wait. You doing a great job in publishing and getting a, some of the best endorsements in flyers and on the book. Thank you. And I'm excited about it. I appreciate it's, it's, the chance to talk about it anytime I have a chance. As you can tell, I go on and on.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, it was a collaboration, and uh, that's the best way to publish uh, yep. With yep. All, in a collaboration way. Okay,
1: yep. thank you. All right. Thank you, Robert.